Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, medical malpractice, mental health conditions, and substance use disorder that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Without experience playing classical piano, one wouldn't attempt to perform a concerto at Carnegie Hall. Without a degree in engineering, designing a bridge would pose significant challenges. And without months of physical training, most people would never attempt a marathon. But there are some people who believe they can achieve at a high level without practice or training. It might be called confidence, but when it's combined with negligence, it may be more aptly deemed delusion. Dr. Christopher Dunch was overconfident, negligent, and delusional. He certainly was not like most people, because with almost zero training in surgery, Dr. Dunch sliced open his patients' spines. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to assist Alistair with some medical insight into the case of Christopher Dunch, a spineless spine surgeon who failed at football, failed in business, but used his medical license to finally find success as a killer. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on Texas neurosurgeon Dr. Christopher Dunch, also known as Dr. Death. From 2011 to 2013, Dunch killed two patients and maimed dozens in the operating room. This episode, we'll cover Dunch's medical training, his unlucky beginnings as a businessman, and his first disastrous surgeries. Next time, we'll explore his continued streak of bad operations and the stint that finally landed him in the crosshairs of the authorities. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. In the early 2010s, 
Dr. Christopher Dunch seemed to have everything together. A loving family, a six-figure salary, and a respected and fulfilling position as a surgeon in a private practice. So when his childhood football teammate, Jerry Summers, needed surgery to alleviate his chronic spinal pain, Jerry was confident Dr. Dunch could do the job. Dunch prescribed Jerry an operation called an anterior cervical fusion. An anterior cervical fusion is a surgery that entails filling the empty gap between two vertebrae, or spinal bones, in the neck or cervical spine. Surgeons do this by using small blocks of our pelvic bones, either harvested during surgery or from a bone bank. The implanted bone graft between the vertebrae then causes them to grow together or fuse. The operation's either meant to alleviate painful nerve root pressure caused by bone spurs and herniated disc material, or to stop unhealthy, uncomfortable motion between two targeted vertebrae. Anterior cervical discectomy infusion, or ACDF, is one of the most common procedures performed in spinal surgery, and it's increasingly becoming more of an outpatient intervention. It's pretty routine and safe, unless you have underlying conditions or you're a giraffe. However, Alistair, this kind of surgery is still considered a major operation because of how vulnerable the spine is, and they involve the associated risks of infection, dangerous bleeding complications, and permanent nerve damage. Jerry knew he was placing his life in Dr. Dunch's hands as he went under the knife on February 2nd, 2012. But again, he trusted his friend. When he woke up after the surgery, Jerry tried to shift in his bed, only to realize something was very wrong. He couldn't move his arms or legs. With growing horror, Summers realized what happened. His old friend, Dr. Dunch, hadn't fixed him. He'd paralyzed him. When Jerry Summers first met Christopher Dunch, Dunch had no intention of becoming a doctor. His dreams were glossier, college football, and perhaps even the NFL. Growing up in suburban Tennessee in the 1980s, football felt like the only fast track to fame and fortune, end goals Christopher Dunch always strived for. Dunch wasn't the biggest or strongest in his high school, but he was one of the most determined to become a Division I college football player. Sadly, determination didn't cut it. As a senior in the late 1980s, Dunch could only secure financial aid to a Division III school, Millsaps College in Mississippi. Dunch accepted the offer anyway, seeing it as a temporary situation he could finesse into something better. He'd play hard, then transfer schools. One year later, through sheer force of will, Dunch got into Colorado State University and successfully made their team as a walk-on, fulfilling his goal of being on a Division I team. He was finally on one of the top college football teams in the country, but as one of the lowest-ranked players. He struggled, forcing himself through drill after drill and endless practices, 
but the skill just wasn't there. Despite all the work he'd done, Dunch was often benched. After one season at Colorado State University in 1991, a defeated and homesick Dunch returned to Tennessee and transferred to Memphis State University, as it was called at the time. It was a life-changing move. Had 20-year-old Dunch looked into the impact of transferring in the NCAA, he would have realized that heading to a different institution yet again would make it very difficult, if not impossible, to play for his new school. Unfortunately, Dunch didn't realize his mistake until after he arrived back in his hometown and started at his third college in three years. Just like that, he was stripped of his college athlete status. The lifelong dream was dead. But Dunch wasn't finished chasing prestige. He still wanted to become exceptional, rich, and well-respected. Perhaps influenced by his father, a physical therapist, Dunch decided he'd pursue medicine. After graduating from Memphis State University in 1995, 24-year-old Dunch attended medical school at the University of Tennessee at Memphis. Just like on the football field, Dunch pushed himself rigorously, working for the recognition he craved. Apparently, the title of MD wasn't enough. So he enrolled in a program that would also earn him a PhD. By the time he graduated in 2001 and 2002, he was one of only 12% of his class named to the prestigious Alpha Omega Alpha Medical Honor Society. On paper, Dunch was an impressive and gregarious student headed for success. And after graduation, he started a surgical residency program at the University of Tennessee to secure his medical license. In this position, he was tapped to lead the school's tissue bank, and he also became a talented grant writer, receiving over $3 million in funding for various research projects. Right on track. However, for the University of Tennessee, Chris Dunch gained a reputation for his heavy partying and drinking habits. According to a college friend, he worked hard and played hard, at one point even doing cocaine before heading into his morning hospital shifts. One person even filed an anonymous complaint with the hospital, alleging Dunch used drugs before seeing patients. His peers were right to be concerned, and I'm sure they were also in a fair amount of disbelief. It's obviously a major problem if a doctor's inebriated on the job for a ton of reasons. It demonstrates extreme arrogance and some major psychological issues. Although this isn't a widespread issue in the medical community, it definitely happens, and it's a problem that's generally underreported. Doctors caught working drunk or on drugs in the past were primarily sentenced to diversion programs for rehabilitation, but these have become few and far between because of budgetary issues and the high recidivism rates for addiction treatment. In my home of California, for example, the state's licensing board recently discontinued their diversion program, which makes substance abuse violations much less tolerated. 
This behavior can now result in an immediate suspension of a physician's license, or potentially worse, if there's associated criminal activity. And Chris Dunch wasn't just using cocaine and drinking alcohol. Some of his fellow residents reported that Dunch misused prescription painkillers and took LSD while on the clock. According to the chief of neurosurgery at the University of Tennessee, the department did take action on the complaint. They tried to drug test Dunch, but he disappeared for several days when it was scheduled. They took this as confirmation. He had a problem. When Dunch resurfaced, the department made him attend a program for doctors with substance use disorders. Despite this, there's no evidence that Dunch ever stopped using substances before shifts. In the mid-2000s, while still in residency at the University of Tennessee, Dunch worked on a team alongside Russian scientists that patented technology to grow stem cells outside of the human body. Spurred on by the sense of progress he felt, in 2008, 37-year-old Dunch co-founded a company called Discgenics. He worked with them to develop a stem cell technology that could heal spinal injuries. And this wasn't just interesting medical work. There was real money to be made in stem cell technology. Oddly, however, when Dunch presented himself as a medical expert who helped develop the technology, it seems he worked more on the fundraising side. The charm and persuasion that had carried him through multiple football programs and into elite college social clubs now served as a primer for willing investors. But Dunch's smooth operating was a double-edged sword. While his confidence helped him convince others that they should invest in his company's research, it was built on lies. In his official resume, Dunch claimed to have received a doctorate in microbiology from St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. He hadn't. According to Dallas-based D Magazine, St. Jude said it had no such program at the time. As Discgenics grew, Dunch continually exaggerated his experience to legitimize himself to business partners. And he wasn't just lying on his resume, he'd never recovered from his addiction. One investor spotted him starting his day with a glass of vodka and orange juice, then became more worried when he saw cocaine at his house. His habits resulted in negligence at work, and soon, having Dunch on the team became a liability for the other investors. In 2011, three years after the founding of Discgenics, it all came crashing down. A former Discgenics chief operating officer sued Dunch for failure to pay in money and stock. The lawsuit, along with his problematic behavior and apparent substance abuse, spelled the end for Dunch's business career. His former partners forced him out of Discgenics, stripping him of his title as both chief science officer and board member. Dunch's reputation as a businessman was tarnished. Making matters worse, his financial situation was tenuous. Thanks to student loans, business failures, and his spendthrift lifestyle, he accumulated over $500,000 in debt by age 40. 
Dunch had no clear path forward. His career as an entrepreneur, like his former life as a football player, had come to an ignominious end. So he changed tracks once again. Though he did stay in the medical field, turning to another difficult and respected job where he could gain the prestige he craved. And this time, he wouldn't let failure stop him. Coming up, Christopher Dunch sets his sights on the operating room. It's October 20th, 2018, one day until the end of the world. I'm on the compound of a secretive religious organization, interviewing a longtime member. Their leader has predicted that tomorrow will be the beginning of the apocalypse. The prediction? Yes, I am prepared. It will purify life from a lot of illusions. When I started working on this story, I was hoping to profile a unique apocalyptic group that had survived through many failed doomsday predictions. But the end of the world was just the beginning. The only way to get to heaven was to allow him sexual activity with me. I didn't specifically give my consent. I was frozen at the time. The angels, they arranged that he is supposed to have sex with his students. He is an amazing teacher, and also he's a sick f This is Revelations, a Spotify original from Parcast, premiering Sunday, October 3rd. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now, back to the story. In the spring of 2011, 40-year-old Dr. Christopher Dunch's career as a medical technology entrepreneur was finished. He'd been kicked out of the stem cell company he had co-founded after he failed to pay workers. Plus, he developed a reputation for drug use. He needed a fresh start. So Dunch decided to leave Memphis and pursue a new career path in clinical practice as a surgeon. Though he'd completed a medical residency program, Dunch likely never intended to become a surgeon. According to his school records, he'd operated fewer than 100 times during his education, while most neurosurgery students perform 1,000 operations during their training. However, at the time, the details of his education, like the number of operations performed, were private and sealed. And on paper, he had over 10 years of experience and impressive lab leadership positions. This made him an appealing candidate for recruiters from medical clinics and private practices. And as usual, Dunch used his charming personality to convince everyone that he had great expertise. It worked. Within a few months of looking, Dunch began receiving offers from hospitals in Texas, New York, and San Diego. During this period of transition, Dunch met a striking strip club dancer named Wendy at a bar. Though he didn't have plans of setting down roots just yet, he fell for her 
and the two began dating. Three months later, the couple had moved in together in Memphis. Soon, Wendy was pregnant with Dunch's child. The news came right as Dunch received a job offer from the Minimally Invasive Spine Institute, a private practice in North Dallas. The idea of returning to a consistent job while supporting a family appealed to Dunch's vanity. So, he accepted the job, and Dunch and Wendy moved to Texas in the summer of 2011. Later that year, Wendy gave birth to a son named Aiden. Fatherhood, however, was low on Dunch's list of priorities. Before he could start working as a surgeon, he needed to obtain surgical privileges. A hospital's surgical privileges grant surgeons the right to perform medical procedures in their facility. This privilege hinges on a doctor's specific training and skill set, their track record of competency, and any negative marks on their record, including staff for patient complaints, misconduct, or any malpractice issues. In addition to the obvious training and professional prerequisites for privileges, the American College of Surgeons requires a doctor to have medical liability insurance and to demonstrate a willingness to comply with institutional policies and guidelines. They also need to be screened for physical, mental, and cognitive problems, which ironically cover drug and alcohol dependence. After being granted the right to operate, surgeons are periodically reevaluated to maintain their privileges, and these decisions are based on performance reviews and successfully maintaining their professional license. By getting his surgical privileges, Dunch could also bring outside patients in for procedures. Though he'd work at the Minimally Invasive Spinal Institute, his privileges were certified at the nearest hospital the Baylor Regional Medical Center at Plano, just north of Dallas. In the process, the Baylor Plano administrators contacted Dunch's supervisors back in Tennessee. Although it's unconfirmed, these individuals were likely in the position to know about Dunch's substance use issues and the anonymous complaint against him. On top of that, one supervisor was also an investor in Discgenics, and likely had some knowledge of Dunch's contentious exit. In spite of all that, Dunch generally received glowing recommendation letters. They specifically praised the doctor's character and work ethic. Soon, all the paperwork was finalized. The Baylor Plano Medical Center granted 40-year-old Christopher Dunch surgical privileges and he officially began work for the Minimally Invasive Spine Institute. Baylor Plano took on most of the financial burden of hiring Dunch, advancing his first year's pay of $600,000. On top of that, Dunch would receive bonuses and a percentage of the Institute's profits above $800,000. All of Dunch's financial problems appeared to be handily wiped out, which may have allowed Dunch to support growing drug habits. Just as his substance use had bled into his residency and job at Discgenics, it soon slipped into his work at the Spine Institute. Dunch kept a bottle of vodka under his desk in his office and allegedly used cocaine during his shifts. He seemed to think he could get away with it this time, 
and that wasn't all he was getting away with. Not long after starting his high-paying new job in Dallas, Dunch began an affair with his assistant, Kimberly. The doctor's ego was at an all-time high. And that was evident to those around him. Dunch was an immediate presence at the clinic and the hospital. He was loud, arrogant, and prone to boasting about his medical knowledge and supposed surgical prowess. Even though he had hardly ever worked in an operating room before, Dunch insisted that he was the best neurosurgeon in Dallas. In reality, his skills were questionable at best. According to co-workers, Dunch didn't even know how to properly use a scalpel. There were multiple incidents when operations had to be rescheduled because Dunch failed to order the right tools or was simply unprepared. His bosses at the spinal clinic were not impressed. Dunch's lack of knowledge, combined with his arrogant behavior, was so strange that one of the co-owners of the clinic, Dr. Michael Rimlawi, suspected that Dunch was impaired somehow by alcohol, drug use, mental illness, or all three. But they'd spent a lot of money recruiting Dunch and bringing him to Dallas. They weren't going to cut ties with him solely based on his abrasive personality. It's the hospital's responsibility to deal with doctors they believe to be incompetent. In order to deal with compromised practitioners, healthcare facilities will sometimes require them to work with mentors or supervising doctors until they're deemed competent or no longer a liability. There's also the possibility that these doctors receive some light administrative discipline, along with specialized counseling, addressing their specific areas of concern. Regardless of a doctor's inflated ego or stupidity, the real problem starts with the hospital, which shouldn't allocate huge financial resources before fully vetting those physicians it's recruiting. There's no excuse, Alistair, for allowing someone to operate without the requisite skills or to be such a jerk on the job, for that matter. Dr. Dunch would soon get the opportunity to prove his skills or prove Dr. Rimlawi's suspicions valid. Sadly, Dr. Rimlawi would be proven right. In September 2011, Dunch performed a minor operation on a Thursday afternoon. As soon as the surgery was over, Dunch allegedly left to catch a plane to Las Vegas, where the 40-year-old, newly rich doctor had plans to spend the weekend. But he hadn't told anyone he was going and didn't make plans for his patients post-surgical care. It's the doctor's responsibility to keep track of a patient after surgery or secure an on-call or covering physician who will. Basically, when doctors leave a shift, they need to sign out and provide a game plan to an available practitioner for every patient under their care. This ensures continuity of care and failure to do so was a huge mistake on Christopher's part. Not only would this kind of abandonment make it extremely difficult for a patient to be safely discharged from the hospital, it could also be very dangerous from a post-operative or recovery standpoint. Say, for example, Alistair, someone had an acute complication hours after their surgery. If this person's care plan was firmly established, anyone coming to help would already be versed in this patient's history. 
a lack of postoperative communication and instruction from their doctor could result in a dangerous outcome due to inadequate short-term monitoring and needed follow-up care. This lack of guidance could lead to problems like infection or wound dehiscence, which is when a surgical incision reopens. Dunst's actions here represent pure neglect, and he should have been cited for malpractice. Over the next four days, the staff at the Baylor Plano Medical Center and the Minimally Invasive Spine Institute tried and failed to contact Dunch. Meanwhile, the patient was stranded in the hospital since they were still technically under Dunch's care and no other physician could discharge them. Before long, the hospital called the co-founder of the clinic, Dr. Rimlawi, who got personally involved, phoning Dunch over and over again. But there was no answer. The doctor had disappeared. On Monday morning, Dunch abruptly reappeared at work as though nothing happened. When Dr. Rimlawi confronted Dunch, demanding to know where he'd vanished over the weekend, Dunch offered him a blank stare. He'd been under the impression that after conducting the surgery, he was no longer on call and was free to enjoy a long weekend. Dr. Rimlawi shook his head. This was preposterous. Dunch was either ignorant of his duties or chose to ignore them. Both were unacceptable. Rimlawi fired Dunch within the week, around three months after Dunch first signed his contract. This termination didn't mean Dunch's career as a surgeon was over, however. Far from it. It was just beginning. The Baylor Plano Medical Center had already committed a large amount of money for the surgeon, including an entire year's salary paid in advance and even a marketing budget to advertise his services. And despite Dunch's problematic behavior, the hospital didn't want to write off that money. So in the fall of 2011, they decided they would allow Dunch to continue to operate within the Baylor Plano service area. The spinal clinic warned the hospital that they were working with someone who had serious problems. They'd had good reasons to fire him. But the hospital overlooked the warning signs. According to court documents, they enticed Dunch to build his own practice in the Dallas suburb of Plano by offering even more support. They raised their advertising budget to promote Dunch's surgical services further and even encouraged other doctors to refer their patients to Dunch. He'd quite literally failed upwards. But the hospital only cared about protecting their investment. The more surgeries Dunch performed, the more money they made. And the sooner they'd be able to recoup the $600,000 they'd advanced him. According to a lawsuit filed in 2014, Baylor Regional Medical Center at Plano allegedly stood to make a profit of $65,000 every time Dunch operated. So they'd need at least 10 surgeries to start breaking even. They didn't realize that Dunch would never help them break even. In fact, before long, their failed hire would bring them nothing but more trouble. 
Coming up, Dr. Dunch continues operating with disastrous results. Now, back to the story. Dr. Christopher Dunch had a circuitous route to the operating room. After failing to play Division I college football and then failing again with a biotech startup, he used his MD degree to win a job as a spinal neurosurgeon, where once again he failed, fired from his first job in less than three months. However, Dr. Dunch's contract with the Minimally Invasive Spine Institute included a pricey agreement to serve patients of the Baylor Regional Medical Center at Plano. Dr. Dunch had been paid for the year in advance. So in fall 2011, Baylor Plano scrambled to recoup the hundreds of thousands of dollars they'd already invested in the sham doctor at the cost of their patients. On December 30th, 2011, Dr. Dunch scrubbed in for a spinal fusion. A spinal fusion is an operation that involves using natural or synthetic bone to fill the space between the vertebrae, which ultimately allows them to grow together and become fused. A spinal fusion may be done after the removal of a herniated or damaged disc to fill the void, so to speak. Spinal fusions may also be carried out to fix painful deformities, like the unnatural curvatures of the spine, from scoliosis. It's really a very common operation and generally doesn't lead to serious complications. However, Alistair, just to reiterate, spinal surgery is inherently risky because of the abundance of nerve axons within the spinal cord, accompanied by a host of delicate and vital blood vessels. But this spinal fusion wasn't routine or simple. Dr. Mark Hoyle, a general surgeon at Baylor Plano was assigned to assist Dr. Dunch in the procedure. Specifically, Dr. Hoyle was in charge of cutting the patient open and sewing him up after Dunch had operated. But when Dunch started his work inside the patient's spine, Hoyle realized something was very wrong. There was far too much blood loss and Dunch seemed to be going off script, attempting to remove parts of the spine that weren't supposed to be touched in this procedure. There was so much blood leaking out of the patient that Dunch could barely see his instruments. In the thousands of spinal fusions Dr. Hoyle had seen before, none were anything like this. So he spoke up, alerting Dunch that his actions were dangerous. But Dunch ignored him. He claimed he was operating by feel, not by sight. This attitude horrified Dr. Hoyle. He stepped forward and grabbed Dunch's instruments. There was too much blood loss to continue. Furious, Dunch argued with Dr. Hoyle. As their patient lay open on the operating table, the conflict continued between the two surgeons. If two specialists are in conflict or fighting during a surgery, something's gone terribly wrong. These situations are fortunately rare because surgeons working together usually respect each other or at least realize that patient needs are bigger than their own irritations. Like many other professionals, surgeons can be egotistical and stubborn. But at the end of the day, Alistair, most surgeons realize their need to rely on each other, especially while performing difficult or risky procedures. 
in my own experience, it seems like there's greater potential for conflict between a doctor and a co-worker with less training, like a nurse or resident physician. This hierarchy can create a power dynamic, and if you throw in an age differential, a smoldering fire can easily flame out of control. I've seen some heated arguments among medical professionals, but never between surgeons in the operating room. And maybe it's because these guys have knives. Any disagreements are likely handled professionally and normally get cleared up before they escalate into something major. Amid the fight, Dr. Dunch finally paused and listened to Dr. Hoyle. He made some good points. And eventually, the two doctors managed to pull together and finish the surgery. After the incident, Dr. Hoyle removed himself from any scheduled surgeries with Dunch and told the hospital he would never work with Dunch again. But while Dr. Hoyle could remove himself from Dunch's orbit, the poor patient could not. One week after the botched operation, they were scheduled for a follow-up surgery, also performed by Dunch. Dunch assured the poor man that he would be fine. But the opposite was true. After two surgeries, the patient's chronic back pain was even worse than before. This wasn't an isolated incident. Multiple times in November and December 2011, Dunch performed surgeries at Baylor Plano that ultimately led to further procedures and no relief. Somehow, Dunch slipped through the cracks, continuing to operate. For whatever reason, the hospital let him slide. If they had forced Dunch to undergo a drug test, they'd have found that his addiction was growing worse. Alleged frequent cocaine use was leading to cyclic crashes. A cocaine crash is no joke, and it makes sense that an addict would do anything to avoid one. Coke is a powerful stimulant that causes euphoria, exhilaration, increased energy, and often paranoid agitation. The reason for this is that it stimulates the sympathetic nervous system, which revs your engine and leads to a faster heart rate, constricted blood vessels, and an immediate rise in blood pressure. In addition to other neurotransmitters, the drug also delivers a massive flood of dopamine to the brain's reward center, which is why people experience so much pleasure and excitement after using. Cocaine comedowns feel so awful because the parasympathetic nervous system overcompensates to nullify the intense effect of the drug, filling the body with strong counteracting chemicals and hormones. This response basically manifests as the exact opposite of a cocaine high and can cause someone to feel severely depressed, fatigued, and incredibly anxious. These withdrawals can also manifest as physical symptoms like headache, low blood pressure, and a runny nose caused by the reopening of the cocaine-induced constricted mucus glands. These constant cocaine peaks and valleys absolutely would have impacted Dunch's ability to perform on the job. During these crashes, no one could reach Dunch, sometimes for as long as a couple of days. Afterward, he'd return to the hospital and resume using cocaine. The cycle would begin again. He also continued drinking heavily and misused prescription drugs like OxyContin, which he illegally obtained. 
It's possible Dunch kept himself inebriated so that he could remain in a delusional state of mind and truly believe he was a groundbreaking neurosurgeon. If he sobered up, he'd realize his life was a lie and quit. After all, he evidently didn't have the skills to be operating. But confronting that would have meant accepting his mounting debt as a permanent fixture and letting his ego come crashing down. So, he never sobered up. After all, he had surgeries to perform. On February 2nd, 2012, 40-year-old Dunch operated on Jerry Summers, his childhood friend and former roommate. They'd played football together in high school and remained close friends through adulthood. Jerry Summers had lingering neck problems due to a high school football injury, which had recently worsened following a car accident, and Dunch prescribed an operation called an anterior cervical fusion. Unfortunately, the operation didn't go as planned. During the surgery, Dunch damaged Summers' vertebral artery, which caused massive amounts of bleeding. According to Mother Jones, Dunch hurried to stop it by packing Summer's spine with material known as gel foam. But that squeezed Summer's spine and did little to help any underlying problems. The amount of gel foam that Dunch reportedly packed into Jerry's spine would have led to a dangerous amount of pressure and swelling. On top of overusing this absorbable sponge-like material, which is known to dangerously expand, the bleed Dr. Dunch created by damaging Jerry's vertebral artery was devastating. The vertebral artery takes oxygenated blood to the brain, and it's under extremely high pressure, so any trauma here would mean a large amount of bleeding. This was so dangerous because not only was his brain being deprived of oxygenated blood, but his spinal cord and its nerve tissues at the site of trauma weren't receiving fresh oxygen either. This could have caused paralysis below the point of the so-called spinal squeeze, but it also may have resulted in anoxic brain damage or brain death if the bleeding continued. Dunch had to have known he messed up significantly. He was definitely wishing he was back in Vegas at that moment. When Jerry Summers woke up after the operation, he made a horrifying discovery. He was unable to move from the neck down. Summers was understandably devastated and lashed out at Dunch. In the days following the surgery, Summers claimed he and Dunch had done cocaine together the night before the operation. Although Summers later said he was lying and made up the story to get back at Dunch for paralyzing him, the hospital took the claim seriously. They finally removed Dunch from both the Summers case and any other major surgeries on his docket. They demanded a drug test and a psychological evaluation before Dunch could operate again. Dunch once again managed to avoid the drug test but he passed the psychological evaluation. And somehow, the hospital seemed willing to believe Dunch's claim that Jerry Summers' paralysis was a tragic accident. On March 11th, barely a month after the Summers operation, Baylor Plano reinstated Dunch's surgical permissions. In his mind, Dunch was still the best neurosurgeon in Dallas, 
and he was eager to get back into the operating room to prove it. His next patient was Kelly Martin, a 55-year-old woman. She suffered from back pain after a fall but was otherwise in good health. Her primary doctor referred her to Dr. Dunch, who was supposedly highly recommended. An impression likely fueled solely by the Baylor Plano Medical Center's marketing campaign. Martin met with Dunch, who suggested she undergo a microlaminectomy. A microlaminectomy is a surgery conducted to remove a small piece of the spine in order to relieve pain from spinal cord compression. It's generally performed on people with symptomatic and painful spinal stenosis, which mostly occurs in the lumbar region or the lower part of the spine. The condition's usually a result of old age and additional trauma, and it's marked by a narrowing of open spaces within the spine, resulting from abnormal bone overgrowth, known as bone spurs, herniated discs, thickened ligaments, and tumors. The bones of the spine form a canal that protect and shield the spinal cord, which holds a ton of sensitive nerve tissue. This is why any structural damage or malformation in the spine can put an agonizing strain on the spinal cord, and is the main reason, Alistair, why people elect to have microlaminectomies. This is a routine procedure for neurosurgeons, and it's minimally invasive, requiring only a small incision that leaves minimal muscle and tissue damage. These operations are common and referred to as the bread and butter of spinal surgery. From Kelly Martin's perspective, she had nothing to worry about. She trusted Dunch. He seemed confident, skilled, and trustworthy. And when she went under the knife in March 2012, she didn't know about the recent hold on his caseload, nor what happened to Jerry Summers. During the operation, Dunch sliced through a major blood vessel in Kelly Martin's spine, similar to what he had done during Jerry Summers' surgery. This time, however, the error was irreversible. Kelly Martin bled to death shortly after. There was no more denying it. Dr. Chris Dunch was a danger to patients. After Kelly Martin's tragic and avoidable death, Baylor Regional Medical Center at Plano was finally forced to confront the situation. Worse, they had to consider that Dr. Dunch's failures might be outright malpractice. As the facility executives deliberated over their next moves, Dunch denied all wrongdoing. One thing became clear he wouldn't leave the operating room without a fight. Next time, Dr. Christopher Dunch wriggles through bureaucratic loopholes as more innocent victims go under his knife. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you, Alistair. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. 
This episode of Medical Murders was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Lauren DeLille and Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. The only way to get to heaven was to allow him sexual activity with me. These are not the people that you would normally associate with a cult. Do you think I need to be worried for my safety? I definitely think you should be prudent. This is Revelations, a Spotify original from Parcast, premiering Sunday, October 3rd.